Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is imagining a new normal towards social justice. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to the final episode of Season 9 of Surviving Society Remote Edition. We are really, really excited to be joined by an absolutely brilliant scholar and one of my friends, who is now going to be one of T's good friends because that's how this works. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Black British independent social science researcher, Belle Parnell-Berry. PhD research a number of years ago now on um, accommodation policies for travellers in the UK. Been based for a number of years. Ten years has been based in the Netherlands. Is the co-founder of IRIF, which is the European Race and Imagery Foundation, and is currently writing a book on black families in the Netherlands. You are such an <laughs> impressive scholar. Please big yourself up, okay? <laughs> Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, your scholarly trajectory to the Netherlands, but also your personal trajectory to the Netherlands and how, and I guess sort of eventually how you've ended up going on to write this book, but also founding Erif as well? Well, when I started the PhD in Hull, my supervisor, Alan Norton, he had a lot of connections to the Netherlands, to the VU University in Amsterdam. We travelled over and I met a scholar by the name of Caroline Volk, who she's Dutch, but she's now based in London. We kind of struck up a bit of a rapport because, you know, she was also looking at policy. She was looking at ethnic categorizations and doing a lot of work with Devorah Yanov. And we were also both very interested in racialized imagery. So that was kind of step one. At some point, several months later, I met Tone, my husband. And so I would be visiting the Netherlands to see him. But then I would also go and hang out with people like Caroline. And I would get to know her network. And then I met interesting characters like Quincy Gario and Simone Zeefalk. And learn a little bit more about the work they were doing within the Black Dutch community around racist imagery, but also institution, more, you know, institutional racism as a whole. And came to realise that the Netherlands was not this um, colourblind utopia that we kind of grow up thinking that it is. At some point in my relationship with my husband or then boyfriend, I'm, I decided to move and take that leap. But it was also, I already have a bit of a life in the Netherlands, just, you know, apart from him, around this this kind of growing research area that I'm re- more and more invested in and interested in. So it just kind of felt like a very natural thing to do to move. And that was in um, 2011 that I came. And the biggest thing that we were all talking about at that time was Walter Pete. The best way I can describe it just to a British person is to imagine a person dressed up as a golly, essentially. Hundreds of them parading through the street, giving out candy to children as the servant or enslaved person of St. Nicholas or Sinterklaas, as it's called here. Because I was meeting so many different movers and shakers across Europe uh, who were all talking about racialized imagery, policy, discrimination, And we were all trying to find a voice that was distinct from the US narrative of racism and anti-blackness. At some point, 
we were saying to each other, it would be great if, if we could all be together in a room versus having these kinds of virtual conversations and emails back and forth. And so we just started organising a conference, which was about European blackface. And we did that in 2014. And that was the beginning of IRIF. When you say the word blackface, I think most people think of, well, especially modern times, they think of America, right? That's the link. When I was growing up, I would see blackface on TV. It was still on BBC One, BBC Two. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there is like a both selector and Little Britain and yeah, it, yeah. but even like, I remember there was a the black and white minstrel show. So there was yeah. there was still show repeats on BBC One when I was growing up, and I, you'd see that and people would watch it. And I, like I said, I would sit there with, with my family. My nan would sit there and watch it. Mm. And when I think back now, I'm thinking, what was she doing? Like that's that's mad. But people that tradition of that kind of racism, that narrative racism. We don't, we, it's not really spoken about, we've got that American narrative still, and which kind of pervades and overtakes everything, but that's not our experience, right? One of the things that I've kind of discovered and that I admittedly need to do a, a lot more research on and become a little bit more fluent in is that even now when we talk about it in the Netherlands, when we're campaigning actively against Swartopi, the start point tends to be 18th, 19th century blackface minstrel shows in the States, as you mentioned, and then the way people rationalise it is, well, that that was so popular and they were touring Europe, therefore that's that's the link. But I actually think it starts in Europe. Yeah. Like the origins of Morris dancing, which was a European-wide phenomenon, um, and it was depicting Moors, which were black people from North Africa. That was just a term that was used to describe all black people in, like, mm. the, I don't know, the 13th, 14th century. Mm. There were a lot of black people in uh, throughout Europe at the time, a lot of powerful, wealthy black people. People knew where they came from. This whole idea that we only just showed up in the last 60 years, you know, it's, it, all of this is a myth. Depictions of the other, depictions of the black man as a boogeyman, someone to be afraid of, this far-off power that could come and steal European power, white power, this is very ancient. Furthermore, if we can trace back blackface performances to as early, like I say, as the 14th, 15th century, what else was happening at that time? White Europeans were going to America and they took with them folk dancing. They took with them ways of performing, performing the other, ways of establishing whiteness and, and various forms of European nationalism. They took all of that with them. So for me, it's like, oh, okay, this is actually a European thing. It became a very Americanized thing, like everything does whenever it goes that way across the Atlantic. And so the two traditions, which were growing up individually on opposite sides of the Atlantic fused together at some point in the 19th century just as advertising and marketing was really you know growing as an industry got this kind of globalized movement of goods through colonization and imperialism hand in hand with that was this depiction of black people not brought over from Americans, not something that's on the other side of the world, therefore has nothing to do with us, but actually a cousin of something that was created right here under under our feet. And I think that's something that we really have to get to grips with as European scholars. And that needs to be the, the push in our narrative. I think it makes sense because it's instantly recognisable that the Europeans take to it. It doesn't take long for them to kind of jump on it because historical memory, if you will. So yeah. people recognise these things and they say, oh, that's familiar to me. This is what I've kind of stressed about people here, that our presence 
they, they've always known about our presence. So if you go to, I think if you go up to Hadrian's Wall and you go to the barracks and you'll see plaques of people from all around the world who were in Scotland in the turn of the turn of the first century. Mm. So there's all exactly. been a presence. So these ideas have been known for a long time about black people and othering people. What Irif does and what Bell pushes me to think about with regards to thinking about race and imagery and anti-black racism and that connection to marketing, but also in the case of um, the Netherlands, quote unquote, celebration, quote unquote, Christmas, is how in tackling racism and in particular talking about this type of racism, anti-black racism, it has to have a holistic approach that looks at all the different layers of it. So we might get some people that are into sort of like class scholarship now that are listening to what we're saying and they're like, yeah, but how is that? How is that going to change our material conditions? Like, how is that going to do anything? And it's like, actually, this is another layer that, well, this is a particular layer of a wide issue of racism. And this layer it, you can't underestimate its importance because it's something that it like marketing, advertising, Christmas as a whole is something that is, is something that we're brought up on. So if you've got little kids that are, that are thinking that it's OK to have yeah a golly like oh, I can't even I can't even describe it. It honestly makes me feel a bit ill, like describing that that exchange, those interactions that pathologize black people as slaves boogeyman like as all these different things like it they're important considerations important things that, to fight in order to dismantle this stuff they shouldn't be taken for granted <laughs> but well what i was going to ask you sorry is so what's been the pushback on this so what has been the, the dutch defense of saying like why should i stop doing this oh i mean i think it really depends on who you speak to because you you know you can have a very polite conversation where someone is like, well, it's actually a really good role model for black children. Therefore, Who that? What? Therefore, what? Yeah. Isn't it better for there to be some form of representation of black people than none at all? Uh, the, these are kind of the these are the polite responses where somebody wants to have a cordial conversation, and and then at the the other end, uh, what we're dealing with increasingly. Well, I say that, but actually, that's not fair. It's always been there. It's uh, we, we've always had you know violence. Is it? There's a lot of violence, and actually, the xenophobia and the real issue is coming out where you have people that just say, well. If you don't like it, leave. It's our thing. There's this refusal to understand that this isn't people like me who are who are immigrants and have different ideas about race. What we have at the moment, our current movement is is very much led by Dutch black people. They these are people born, raised here, parents perhaps born and raised here, if not certainly born, raised in parts of the Dutch Empire when that was still very much part of the Dutch Kingdom. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And so, you know, the parents would have had Dutch passports. But again, that comes down to very, you know, really willful ignorance or, around how the Dutch Kingdom and the Empire worked, you know, wanting the, the glory of talking about a golden age and an empire without actually understanding what that means in terms of mm. subjects, land, how it's all interconnected, etc. But, you know, that's a whole thing the pushback is 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 very much you know we like it this way the dutch also see themselves perceive themselves to be very like innocent fun loving open people that's the self-image that a lot of you know your average white dutch person has of themselves that therefore they can never mean any harm 
to anyone. And for an amazing analysis of that, you have to read Gloria Becker's book, White Innocence, if you haven't already. It's really in people's bones that they see themselves that way. So when you tell them what they're doing is racist or that it's harmful or that it is excluding children, they they really can't wrap their heads around it because they just don't see themselves in that way. The more sinister side of it, though, is that they just don't care because they're having a good time. And I mean, that is something we can unpack and roll out for various forms of racism throughout Europe. I find that harder to deal with than the person that, that will, you know, that will defend smash, it. Well, that will, yeah. well, that, that will smash up the street in order to defend it because that's what we're dealing yeah. with. We're having riots yeah. exactly. out of here. Exactly. This is why exactly. I was like, I could deal with that because it's, it's a, there's a form of honesty about it, right? Yeah. I know where I stand. But the person that that is like in my mum group with my kid that is still going to go ahead and throw her blackface party with no regard for how that might make my son feel or me feel knowing that this conversation is going on that frightens me far more mm-hmm. and and participating in overt racism right participating in overt racism but at the same time we'll say to you i don't have a racist bone in my body i want to push us a bit on this one because right earlier in the season um you guys would have listened to our episode of alana lentin and we were talking about something very similar to this these conversations about race and racism play out amongst white, middle-class, liberal, well, people that are liberal, sometimes left-leaning, how these conversations will play out. And she made the important point throughout the episode that not caring doesn't necessarily mean they do not know what they are doing. So no, that, exactly. that that notion of innocence, no, they understand there is a hierarchy and there are wages of whiteness. There is a, race has a hierarchy. In order to keep that, maintain that in this instance, I need to carry on having my baby group blackface party. It's an investment. It's an investment in various capitals. Like they know what they're doing. And I think it's it's really uncomfortable because, Obviously, like, we have many peers and whatever that probably fall into this this same group that we're talking about. And it's hard to think that that, that, that is happening. Like, notions of innocence and notions of not caring or no, notions of not realising, it's, it's almost like we're, we're, we're still excusing it in a way. I mean, and that's what's so good about, like, the work of um, Gloria Becker that I mentioned. You know, she, mm-hmm. she, doesn't, she, she doesn't take it at face value at all, that this yeah. innocence argument she actually really interestingly presents it more as a pathology of white Dutchness, that they think they're so innocent. They really right, believe right. that they're so innocent. And of course they know exactly what they're doing, but it's the most natural thing that white people belong in the Netherlands and that white people decide what Dutch culture is and what, what, what Dutch culture, what Dutch history and tradition is. That's so natural. And we are just having our little bit of fun. Why won't you just let us have our party? That's what she means when she's talking about white innocence. And I completely agree with what you just described, Chantal, that, you know, I, one thing I've been saying more and more when people ask me, you know, in conversation, well, what do you think? I'm like, well, they know what they're doing. They know. How can they not know? We've been having this conversation. In truth, we've been having this conversation in the Netherlands for about a century, but every, it, you know, it picks up and it drops and it picks up and it drops and it usually drops because of extreme levels of violence levelled against anti-racist uh, campaigners. And it picks up again 
in 2010, 2011, and we, it's been sustained, you know, for a good chunk of time. And it's really, we're seeing a lot of change as a result. Um, whether or not that change is going in the right direction is another, we can talk, that's something we can debate, but we are seeing change. So when I come across a mum that is like, well, I'm doing my Sinterklaas party and I'm like, okay, do you have, what kind of peace do you have? And they come up with some crappy excuse. I'm like, well, you're a racist then. You just don't want to say it to my face. And that's terrifying. You want me to leave my child in your care. You can't even admit to the views that you have, but you obviously have them because how could you miss the conversation we've been having for the last 10 years? You haven't missed it. You've chosen that your privilege, your comfort, your pleasure is more important than my humanity. And I don't want to have my child around anybody that's like that. Would you say it's the idea of compartmentalising of, of it all is bound up in the imperial message? So for the imperial message that's rolled out to the people is, I'm coming to help these people. It's mm. for your benefit I'm doing it. I'm taking your resources because you don't really know what to do with them. I'm helping you on the way to civilization. If From their perspective, a humanitarian aspect to it because I'm helping you, civilizational-wise, but mm. also that sits alongside the grubby work of colonialism the death, the mayhem, the murder, the rape. But those parts are so compartmentalised. And so how it's delivered to kids and how it's delivered to us growing up, that slavery, that part's the bad stuff. But they don't talk about the mechanics and all that stuff of how products get to the country, that expectation that works on that level, the capitalist level, the, yeah. the level of money, right? The whole concept of an afternoon tea was being dreamed up in a, a grand mm -hmm. Georgian household. No one sat and said, you know, well, the tea leaves are coming from here and the sugar is coming from here. They just were thinking about having a nice time. Mm -hmm. And even now when, you know, ladies go lunching in some nice part of London or, or Amsterdam and they have their afternoon tea or they call it a high tea because they don't even know the origins of what they're doing. They don't think about it then either. They don't think about where it came from or how it started. Another thing that I really want to explore, um, we do a report where we follow um, it with IRIF um, and it's about, we're about to publish our fifth edition. So, you know, you told me to big myself up. I'll just plug it there. Um, <laughs> The reports will be in the episode notes as well, listeners. Yeah, we've been following what's happening in shops because that's that's a quantitative metric we can follow over time. And so we're looking at how the branding and the use of imagery around Zwarte is changing. So we kind of try and grade different representations of the Pete character or the Zwarte character in different shops according to different brands, different products. One thing I think we really want to add to the report is a discussion about the, the ingredients of a lot of the food products, because we talk all the time about Zwartepeet and how he represents an enslaved African who is in service to a white, grand, stately St. Nicholas character. That becomes a, an especially visceral image when you've got hundreds of peats aboard a boat that arrives in the Netherlands for this huge Sinterklaas on parade. Boat. On a yeah. boat as well. That's on a boat as well. It's just so full on. It's so explicit. So we talk about all of the imagery and what that means and how that connects to the Dutch slave trade and their colonial history and how that affects black people even in the present day and how it's part of a massive family of anti-black imagery that disempowers black. We, we talk about that. That's But we don't talk about the ingredients of key Sinterklaas foods like pepper which is or crowd which is like 
herb or spicy cookies, which are usually made with nutmeg and cinnamon. Well, nutmeg and cinnamon are from Indonesia and that part of the world, which was colonized by the Dutch. They were called the Spice Islands at one point. You know, and then you've got chocolate letters, chocolate letters and crowd noting. They are essential to Sinterklaas. They are the key. You know, the way that we have crackers and mince pies at Christmas, the equivalent in Sinterklaas, because Sinterklaas is essentially their equivalent to Christmas, even though it takes place at the beginning of December. The things you have to have are a chocolate letter and your 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 crowd noting. And well, what does a chocolate letter have? It has sugar and it has cocoa. Where are they from? And what are we still involved in, even now, even in present day, in like the like Ivory Coast and Ghana? You know, these are the biggest producers of cocoa in the world. We have these huge scandals with companies like Nestle, where we have child labor on plantations right now as we speak. We need to expand the discussion around Dutch colonial legacy and how it builds traditions and festivals like Sinterklaas. And not just talk about this one enormous part of it, but there's other parts of it that are just as important. I might literally get deported for saying this, but for me, that's the logical next step. This is the defining festival in this country for proving your Dutchness. We were just, just before we started, you guys were talking about proving blackness. Well, if you want to prove that you're Dutch, you throw a kick-ass Sinterklaas party, you get all in. Every element of what makes a Sinterklaas party a Sinterklaas party is tied up in the colonial legacy of the Netherlands and how it became an empire. Wow. Wow. So I've been myth-making, right? So how do you shatter these myths and these stories that have been told over and over again, repackaged, like any idea, it's, it's a moving feast. It's changing all the time. The concept of... Black Peter. Black Peter, that's how I know him. Like, obviously, that's, it's changing, right? It's changing. Him himself is changing. So he, when did it start? They've been celebrating since class, actually, for about, I guess, five, six hundred years, some, maybe longer. Okay. Kind of went underground around the time that um, Protestantism moved into the Netherlands like it was like in the UK as well you know all these kinds of very Catholic celebrations were were, were kind of frowned upon so it was reintroduced as a very commercial festival in the mid 1800s by a school teacher he wrote a a book full of songs and poems about Sinterklaas or Santa Claus and his and his slave called Swartz Pete and so that was the first time the kind of imagery that we now have for that character was introduced and that was at the same time that the Dutch had slaves or enslaved people in their colonies um, in South America and the Caribbean that was at the same time that those enslaved people were producing sugar and making an enormous amount of money that was at the same time Indonesia was part of the empire as well and the the Netherlands was becoming grossly rich because of the the spice trade I mean it's a no-brainer I mean how all these things link together but I also think, T, just on your on your point oh. about myths and stories, I kind of feel like it's it's almost like the opposite. Like the story actually hasn't been told. Like there's a willful ignorance of where this stuff comes from. Yeah, yeah, no, they are. It's a deliberate choice to turn away for sure. When you relay this alternative narrative, as from our perspective, right? I've had people say to me, that "I'm lying." They don't believe me. They actually, they, they're in shock. They're like, well, how comes I haven't read it? I'm like, well, 
They, 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 there are a ton of books. That, I, I, haven't, I haven't made this up. I'm not making this up, right? There's, there's loads of literature out there. But no, that's true. It's when you when it's you do tell people this sort of thing, they cut the disbelief manifests yeah. as non-belief. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, why do you know that? And I don't know that. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point, actually, too. And it's something wait, that I feel like we come, I come up against quite a lot. Like, people are so grossed out by the levels of fuckery that they don't believe it. It's like, no, this is why you are where you are. This is why we are where we are. This is what but, our stories are. But you see, when I, when I say that to them, and I, I, I was saying to Belle before they started, like, I must have posted something along those lines today on my WhatsApp and the pushback I got for my for my white friends was that um, our white people all bad. We're the bad guy. I'm like, no, bro. I'm not saying that. I'm not. We're not individualizing that. I'm trying to talk to you about something that's historic and that's in the ether. It's messed me up internally how I view myself. It's something that's in this structure. So we need to start questioning these things. And I said, yeah. I I am doing that work, but. I need you to do that work now. Like you need to do that work. Just to contextualise what T's saying, it is, I should have said at the beginning of the episode, but it's the 29th of May, 2020. We're in the middle of COVID-19 global pandemic. There are black people being killed by the police all over the world. There is some vile responses from those in power, suppressed protests happening in Hong Kong. Like there's just loads of shit going on, right? And it feels like the images of violence and particularly of black people being subjected to violence is very much in our face right now and it, for me personally the worst thing about that is seeing some of the responses from people to that and I guess that's what you're sort of saying there T yeah. uh, white people individualizing it straight away and being like well what, what does that mean you don't like any of us like just because one of us has killed one of you it's just to contextualize where we are right now Chantel that was very nicely done very nicely done <laughs> Go on, Belle. This concept of the individual is very much built up around the versus the collective in Europe, very much emerged um, in the same period as the colonial era as well. This is also entangled up, you know, with each other. And it's like, you know, we can't, people can't stop thinking about, I mean, in the Netherlands, when you say to someone that's racist, they can't help but take, like you said just now, like as a as an individual attack, you know, not you know versus it being an attack on the system that we're all forced to kind of operate in currently, and that we need to work together to dismantle. And especially in a country like the Netherlands that was occupied by the Germans, the whole idea of being racist is just is just such a huge. I mean, this is. It's true for so many parts of the world that like being called racist is more offensive to the person than the fact that they might have done something racist in the first place or said something racist. Yeah. And um, but that's just so true here because people that you know they feel like that's the defining moment of racism and it was so horrific and therefore nothing can possibly touch it especially not them having a little children's party. That's the thing you have yeah. to kind of deal with. Well, because the Nazis are, in the European imagination, the ultimate racist, right? For them, that is the worst you can be in their eyes. And so uh, we spoke about a lot of people this season, like 1945 for Europe is the cutoff date. After that, we've defeated the bad guy. That's So if you're racist now, you're attached to that past, you're traditional, you're backwards. I think Aaron and Aurelian demonstrate that quite well in their book, Chantel. Like, so when I've told people about and I said in the pod- on a podcast a few weeks ago, my friend initially about the COVID deaths, the BME death rate, he actually said to me, that's a lie. He said, he said, I don't believe it. And I'm like, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not making up. And he genuinely, he wasn't a joke. 
his first reaction was, see, that's a lie. How could that be so? If it was true, everyone would be speaking about it. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, there's also the other layer to that as well, of the people that, again, it's like this sort of more liberal, like, innocent response of, like, oh, it can't be, surely not. Or, wow, yeah, yeah, that's awful. And not really interrogating the structures, which mean that's why it's happened. And kind of, like, sort of seeing that in in sort of eugenicists, from a eugenicist point of view, thinking, oh, well, it's Mm. something about them, clearly. Wow, yeah. Yeah. Can't can't be any people. Yeah. yeah, the layers of it, the layers of the the willful ignorance are, they're exhausting, actually. Yeah. And I think especially like when we're seeing current situation in the US, African-Americans are dying at a disproportionate rate from COVID, but also having to deal with not even just pr- police brutality, but, you know, with Ahmad. Aubrey, I mean, that that was just three guys decided to go on some sort of killing spree, you know, and uh, got away with it for several months. Innocent reaction of, oh, my God, it's so dreadful. Or I, this is 2020. Why is it still happening? I can't believe this still happens. It's like, well, where have you been? This is one of my pet hates. If I speak to some of my white mates and I tell them about I don't want your pee. I don't want you to be ashamed. I'm not asking you to be ashamed or feel guilty because I, I didn't say that to you to make, to get elicit an emotional response. I'm just telling you the reality, right? Just like I'm telling you Brexit happened. It's, it's something that's going on in the ether, right? In the social world we exist in. The response I don't want is, oh, T, that's really bad. Or I feel really bad. Or oh, they shouldn't really do that. Or the worst one, I don't see colour. <gasps> Creeping back into the discourse, isn't it? The I don't yeah. see colour brigade. Do you guys think that that might might have something to do with, like, we were just talking about how, especially in Europe, Nazis, and especially this year when we've had the V V E Day mm-hmm. celebrations. You know, we can we can celebrate V E Day and have our street parties, but please don't celebrate Eid. <laughs> the contradictions are just sickening. The contradictions are so apparent, like so pronounced right now. We have that like, kind of like this is the ultimate this is the worst of the worst and we've net we can't we're not even close to that I feel a little bit like well actually now we do have a movement that really aligns itself with Nazis they're really yeah. proud of that heritage somehow at the yeah. same time as being very proud to be British or Dutch which is mm-hmm. I, I'm still struggling with how that works but that's their thing not mine so we do have that and we can see it and even the most liberal person who who wants to be willfully ignorant can see that that is happening and I don't know if that is what makes people want to assert that they are colorblind because they don't want to be associated with that because they they can't deny that that is racism and that that is in the present. I mean, what do you guys make of that? Yeah, the allure of nationalism. When I was looking at the alt-right, at the kind of softer elements of the alt-right, so they wouldn't align themselves with Nazis or, or fascists, but it's the idea, all they wanted to assert is that we are here too and we feel, and it's kind of in that language, we feel that you've got a lot of stuff from us, but now we're losing out. So... So how it plays out in like in working class areas where resources are scarce, where people are competing over social housing. Like, come on, guys. Like, I've been on the, on the waitlist for a long time and an ethnic minority or, a, or an immigrant gets that flat. In my kind of localised space, I don't see the bigger things going on. All I see is that reality. I've been on the list. Foreign families got in. Yeah. That message plays that role. So they wouldn't consider themselves overtly racist because that's someone who's almost, it's, coming, it's, it's morally repugnant almost in, in this current social space. So all I'm just saying is, well, it's a bit unfair. And when you put in those kind of liberal terms, those liberal rational terms, like it's unfairness. And we're all about fairness. 
justice. But it assumes a native position, like, oh, I'm a native of this country, that yeah. means I should be on the list first. Like I've contributed. I, I'm contributed. I'm born here. So we look after our own. Our own so, yeah. Yeah, of course. And in the language of nationalism, it makes sense. It's it's a rational choice. And that's how they speak. They'll speak to you in a common sense tone. And so but even when they're speaking to me about that, even though I, they know I'm from here, they know that really I'm not from here. So they'll say, well, T, like, like your family, like you, you sort of came, I don't mind that you sort of come over, but you sort of work, like your family's work, because I know your family, they've worked, so they've contributed to the system, and they contribute something, I'm not saying about you. And I'm like, bro, like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but you, you get me, it's one of them ones, right? But it's kind of like going back to, I, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, T, but I'm just trying to pick apart how those conversations or how those ways of thinking or othering people sort of come about. And those conversations are in themselves socially constructed about who is, allowed as les back says automatic belonging like who gets to have automatic belonging and those things are always changing like i think it was john mariah mm. said to us on the podcast not long ago like yeah. you can't yeah. a category of whiteness because it's always changing like it's mm. always changing. So don't, like it's musical chairs i'm very curious about what does the average white liberal wouldn't say boo to a, you know whatever what do they make of the people that explicitly do use swastikas and that, you know, have read, you know, Mein Kampf and, and you know, are, are idolising those kinds of... They do want a white country. They do want to murder, you know, black people. They do They do think that, you know, mi- mixed race people are an abomination and they don't mind saying it publicly. I mean, and they we are dealing with that. That is, that is a reality and that's growing. At the same time, you do, you're do. you quite right. You have the people that kind of justify Brexit to themselves by saying, well, I couldn't get a job for like two years, but the Polish people around the corner had no problem getting a job. Therefore, let's vote for Brexit. They clearly want to separate themselves from this huge, very like explicit Nazi-aligned movement that is, that is also happening across Europe. My question was like, so do you think that's where the, because Chantel, you also talked about colorblindness being something that's re-emerging. So is there, a, is there a possible link there? We wanted to talk about collectively our own lived experiences and sort of collective theorizations of what it's like being black or black mixed race and growing up in predominantly white places and spaces that have a combination of working class, more working class in your experience, T. But I think, Belle, correct me if I'm wrong, but more sort of lower middle class to aspiring middle class in the areas that we grew up in, but still being predominantly white. A bit mixed. I wouldn't say, you know, but it's... Yeah, but pretty, pretty yeah. working class. Yeah. One of the reasons why it might be good to talk about our own lived experience and the perspectives on this is because Belle, as I said before, is one of my friends, but also has helped me in coming to terms with and rationalising some of the things that I found in my PhD research, which is based in a predominantly white town in the West Midlands, happens to be a town that I grew up in, researching and spending time with an, um, black and white mixed race families. It's an ethnography. And One of the really interesting things that has happened in the research is thinking about how people rationalise and come to terms with explicit forms of racism that they live amongst, that they witness, that they experience within the towns they grew up in or the area they grew up in, in your case, T, but also between family members, like people as close to you as your mum, kind of excusing some of these things that happens and what is what that is like as a family. And 
one of the more disturbing things I think happened when I was doing my field work, this is a spoiler a bit, guys, for my PhD, and I, I spoke to T a lot about this, <laughs> and I also spoke to Belle about this, is there was a, a confederate, and if you follow me on Twitter, you'll, you'll see I've, I've tweeted about this, so I wanted to document it, the confederate flag that was outside, that was on my mum's road for a long time, and it was one of my mum's neighbours, and my mum asked him to take it down because she found it offensive, blah, 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 got a black kid, all that stuff. But how this guy lives in white suburbia, rationalised having this flag, wouldn't necessarily align himself with being a far right sympathiser, but saw his Confederate flag on display outside his house as something that was acceptable and something his words were you've got to do what you've got to do so <laughs> so uh, it's so sad it's just laughable quite interesting things but I, when I've spoken to when I've spoken to T about it when I've spoken to Belle about it when I've talked to some of my participants about it is how we all try to rationalize why that's sort of happening and why why is it okay to live amongst that sort of really in-your-face racism amongst those that are considered more respectable or middle class. Vice Magazine published a piece about self-help for black people navigating these difficult times. So this is this is the problem, right? We grew up in this. I've learned through experience how to navigate this stuff. So when so I've seen it so many times. So to me, it's problematic, but I have to kind of work around it because I'm a minority. So I know if I come to, boom, when I've gone anywhere, like, I've gone to an all-white club, boom. I know the rules, right? I've walked in, I know the rules. But the people who are in the majority, they're not having to kind of think about that because they're the majority. And so they, when they put a flag like that, they're not even thinking who's it going to offend. Most people don't even make that connection. If they do make that connection, they associate with a different form of racism, America. But are they? Him putting the flag out, does he know what he's doing? No, 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 no. He does, he does. He's like, obviously he does. It's, it's his flag, right? But most people won't see that as violence against me, right? So I know that as violence against me. But white people, if they're from that country, they associate, that's American racism. It's not our brand of racism. That's why the English flag is problematic, but not the, the Union Jack. So that's our brand of racism. If someone puts out an English flag and you hang it from a window, that person's in the BNP in it or the NF. On V Day with the Union Jacks, well, no one's a racist because that flag's not associated. That's not violence to them. But to me, all that's oppressive, right? Mm. All of that's oppressive. So when I walk around this gaff just now, boom, on VE day, I'm thinking, don't invite me over. I'll end up arguing with all of you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Belle, can you introduce your, as much as you would like to, your sort of experience on this stuff, like growing up in predominantly white places? Well, I have to agree with a lot of what Tisa was just saying about you you just kind of you're brought up to navigate that and to deal with it it kind of makes me we've been talking a lot about you know trying to get through the last you know couple of weeks couple of months I find myself saying to friends you know if they ask you know just in conversation oh how are you how are you doing how's the pregnancy and I'm like oh yeah everything's good but everything's really really not good you know and you kind of just feel like what kind of world are we living in where even now with all this happening and knowing how it's affecting our communities, knowing how it might be affecting our families, we still have to put on a, a you know, smile and be polite and say that everything's okay when, when it's really not. I mean, even as adults who are, you know, each of us analysing this stuff, we've still got the keep calm, carry on mentality that we were raised with. I mean, part of it's being British as well, that you don't, 
make a scene and that you don't, you know, that you just take it on the chin and you keep it moving and you mind your business and you, you know, you're not up for confrontation. But I think for me, you just have to kind of get through your day. And if people say things that are upsetting or offensive, you just have to shrug it off because you can't, we talked a little bit about imagination as well. I couldn't imagine anywhere else that I would ever be this was home there was no other way of being I wasn't ever going to be able to escape or or have any other form of reality so I just had to cope with it and I think you know when we've talked about your research Chantal I hear that you know when when you talk about some of the conversations you've had with your your participants you know you can watch Sister Sister on, you know, <laughs> I love that TV, show. <laughs> Alicia, but that's so far away and so far removed from your your everyday reality as a kid or as a teenager. Yeah. I don't think it ever crossed my mind to think about anything else. And so you just kind of go into cope mechanism, you know, or cope mindset. I was thinking that about all this today and like how this has affected black people and like myself as well my friends we ended up being the worst versions of ourselves right so leaning leaning to stereotypes so we lean into stereotypes like one day people said to me t you got lots of girls i was 14 i was frightened of girls i would never talk to a girl but all of a sudden people start saying you must get loads of girls and i'm eager right i'm well i'm gonna say yes right you're gonna say yes at 14 but you lean into it you grow into it and I start being that thing I'm getting kind of approval from. And so you're you're taking all these things on and you're becoming that the worst version, that stereotype. And without even knowing, but you're realising, and I see men, men in their 50s now, they're still doing that, leaning to the thing that they're great at sex, they do all this, sexualising themselves, mm. selling themselves on that basis alone. Mm. And I'm like, Jeremy, oh, like the sassy <laughs> black woman, right, as well. Mm. Yep, definitely. Yeah, definitely. That was 100% me at school. But what? But I guess one of the things that I'm trying to reconcile with is how being hyper-visible and being the only black person in your area when you're growing up or being the only black family, reconciling with how those internalisations manifest within you and in, within your life, but also how you have to survive racism as well. Mm. So it's like, I don't, I, I was pushed on this recently. Like I, you can't say that it's an, an inevitability that you will you will adopt those internalized issues, internalized anti-blackness in this case. Black people aren't going to stop living in predominantly white places. So huh. what what are the ways that we can harness what? families and people to be able to cope? Because what I'm seeing from my research, what I've seen from conversations me and you have had over the years too, and conversations that I have with Belle a lot of the time, is how damaging this stuff is. Obviously, like racism more broadly is absolutely horrendous, but we're talking about the very, very contextualised issues of place here. And like how those how it's just so it's so deep i think the general answer is education right boom so that's where you start off at the beginning but when i'm talking to the kids who are 13 14 boom or young kids i'm telling them listen you don't have to be that guy like you don't have to be a bad guy no one likes bad people bad people Mm. are dicks man you've got so you've got a range of people now you've got the internet you could be who you want to be there's a market for you there's a segment out of you could reach out to the world and they do they do. By by and large, most black teenagers do do that. There's a small minority that are that particular way. And that's falling on a scene. And even that's not correct because it's very nuanced, right? So people, there's a, a wider range. You don't have to be that guy because you can reach out. So you're not you're not isolated. It's not like when I was growing up, you've only got like one form of representation that you're seeing. 
So I'm not seeing it. I'm hardly seeing it. So when black people come on TV, everyone used to come in the front room. My, my name would say, look, 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 Five Star. When Five Star came on, my name would have a heart attack. She'd be like, why are they doing that to the hair? Why they do, that? do you know what I mean? So, but now you can see everyone. Do you know what I mean? We're everywhere, right? You get me? So, so, we've, got, so we've got the representation. So maybe perhaps it's not, it's not about how we can help the individual. It's about how we can change the structures around and perhaps think about how we talk to and oh i don't know you see you see that the the kind of uh, the idea of Af- is it afropolitanism like yeah the idea that we're a we're a we're a, na- we're, we're a global nation there's black people in japan that go through their own shit. black people in russia doing their own shit. but we are united so we need to create a solidarity that reflects our our kind of united oppression but also reflects the difference in each na- in each country all the struggles that we're going through we're all united, man. And to kind of quote, like, Stuart Hallward, Paul Gilroy, the, like, the, the, the roots, man. We're linked by roots with a, with a U, not double O's, right? I really like what you're saying, T, because it's very, like, it's very positive, And I definitely need that. However... Change the world. You want to change the world, However, man. and Bell can talk on this as well. The thing that's the, probably the most disturbing thing that I have found in, in my research, and I know lots of other people that have done intergenerational studies in particular have found is that things are not getting better so my youngest participants are 19 and my eldest are in their late 60s right the racism that the younger participants have had to negotiate at school only three years ago it honestly makes me want to be sick it is so vicious it is so violent it's just bordering within the school environment in in these cases. And as much as I agree with you, Tin, I think it, having the internet and having access to, to the diaspora on my phone would have been, it would have been a bit of a game changer for me. I'm not going to lie growing up because I was very like gendered, like in terms of my femininity as I was growing up. So that stuff was very important to me. However, dealing with the racism, these kids are having to negotiate now, post-Brexit UK, in this instance it is disturbing like think what we talk about in terms of what you see alt-right far-right people like the kids are doing that's that's the environment that's the environment i grew up in though right that's the environment i grew up in but unfortunately what you need in that environment when people are saying to your face man you need to be resilient but listen i'm gonna tell you now if you if you if you say something to me i'll check you right but the difference (laughs) is now what's quite interesting with the bengali migration into the east end right so probably like the first generation black people when they came over, the first generation are very supplicant. They don't want to make waves, right? But second and third generation, listen, these the Bengali boys, they were running East London by the second and third generation, and these kids are the same. So they're not willing to take no rubbish. That's why you see them on, yeah. on TikTok. I don't have TikTok. George, boom, thanks for the TikTok. Like, just to add to that, I think, yeah, when we've talked about the younger people, you've spoken to Chantel, indeed. Um, and we were talking about this the other day, I think, as well, that maybe part of the reason that they've responded to the racism they've experienced the way they have is because they're not taking it in the way that somebody, you know, five, six, you know, maybe even, you know, 10 years older than them has kind of tolerated it. There's definitely the generational thing, the second, third generation thing is important. But I also do think the way that we communicate, that we are introducing children earlier and earlier to critical ways of thinking, to media literacy, we're giving them the tools to figure this stuff out, especially children from ethnic minority backgrounds that, you know, they are able to use social media and the internet 
you know, in, in a way, like you say, I would have been the same Chantal if I'd been able mm. to look for another world I would have done and that would have perhaps changed I, maybe I wouldn't have put up with as much stuff as I did at school because I would have known like it doesn't have to be like this you know um and I think that that really that changes kids mindset when they can see other possibilities when they ha- have been given a vocabulary in a way of making sense of the world that makes a huge difference regardless of what gen- which generation you come in I think you know I I did some work with some refugee kids before I left the UK and I remember a guy arriving from his family were Rwandan but they had been living in DRC and then they had been resettled in Hull and you know so he would be considered I suppose first generation way more switched on than I would have been at his age about this stuff because he's got the tools in order to to work with it and to to explore my feeling is not that the racism is worse it's being reacted to in a way that makes us feel like it's worse and it's being reacted to in that way because those kids have that vocabulary and those tools i think that things were just as xenophobic when we grew up i think mm. that things were just as violent but we didn't necessarily have a way of reaching out to the world creating those links and those roots that you guys were just talking about and creating platforms for ourselves in order to say I've had enough and if we could have created those roots we would have probably said it well I 100% agree with you and I think the stuff that you're doing now I think we're all doing it you're creating in that academic space you're creating a space where we can look and push back on the structure and I think that's why people feel uncomfortable because they've been so used to hearing a particular narrative of their particular culture their particular version of imperialism but now you're presenting an alternative narrative that did happen alongside this so michael patilla's doing one about then yeah, yeah, yeah he's doing one doing one about nation and they always drew out british yeah. exceptionalism and all that kind of stuff <laughs> equally now since doing survivor society i've met so many academics doing great work and pushing back on new structures, pushing back on all those stereotypes upper ecolians yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mad, mad. It no it is and i guess it's conversations like this which are quite cathartic at times when we're seeing really violent racism all over the world. It's important. It's important. Collaboration, solidarities. Like, we need these. We need these. People need to know about some good stuff that is happening whilst also keeping yeah. their critical eye going. Completely agree. And, I mean, that's one of the things, like, kind of com- coming back to Irish's work a little bit as well, we started with this conference where we were talking about blackface in in a European context and then the the next step was to start focusing a little bit more on resistance and and trying to spread a bit of hope reach out a hand in a way and and one of our current ongoing projects is um, quotes of resistance which we're doing via Instagram Mm. we're um, sharing quotes from one of our conferences um, from talks that were given and workshops that were given that are inspiring that are empowering we really try and connect them to the times like so we had quite a lot of stuff that connected to to disproportionate way um, communities of color and black people were being affected by covid but the circulation for instance of people being murdered 
you know, these videos, the ease that people seem to have with watching it and discussing graphically what happened. Even people that would say themselves very strongly, oh, I'm not racist and I think this is awful and something has to be done, seem to take some sort of weird pleasure. You know, they have a sense of FOMO if they don't see this image of a black person being killed. I even remember that people having that when Timia Rice was murdered. People wanted to watch a child be killed and... We, we kind of call that out, but at the same time, we use a quote, gives energy, that gives fuel, that gives perseverance. We don't just say, this is shit, we need to stop. We, we use the quote as a way to do that and, and because it's necessary. We can't just sit around analysing these things and, as I said, start you know end up feeling a bit hopeless. We have to give ourselves fuel um, and stamina and recreate those roots over and over and over again. So check out Quotes of Resistance on Instagram. I want to get you to speak to my mates. So I'm going to put you in my WhatsApp group. Boom. I'm going to take you. <laughs> reply wise. to them. Reply to them. <laughs> <laughs> reply all. Belle just did a little voice note for us. We can send it round. Oh, Belle, that was absolutely brilliant. And what a lovely, inspiring way to finish this season. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Belle. Thank you, Belle. Thanks no, for that. Thank, thank you, you for making me feel so welcome. Guys, we will be back next week with something very special um, that we'll be announcing in the next couple of days. But yes, thank you so much um, for staying with us this season. Um, it's been a bit of a journey in terms of recording a whole 10 episode season. I want 5G. Remote. I want 5G. So no we need 5G. No, 5G. We need 5G. So can you just let us have 5G, guys? Stop <laughs> protesting. Because to keep this going, we need stronger internet. <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting next to the router. Yeah. So thank you so much, guys, um, and for all your support. Big up our patrons as well. You are integral to keeping this going. And everyone that's come on this season, thank you so much. Big love from me, Chantel. Me, Tiso. Am I Tiso? Yeah, Tiso. <laughs> me, Tiso. <laughs> Every time, guys, has anyone ever listened to this? Have you noticed every time I get prompt him to say his name, he's like, what's my name again? Tiso. Yeah, I hate all that stuff. It's too formal, man. I just, yeah, we have to no. do a little bit of formality, T. <laughs> 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 Thank you again, Belle. And we'll see you soon, listeners. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.